It's Monday, November 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager, and from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser. Happy Monday, guys. Hello there. Um, a, a little bit of a slowish day today, just because the banks and the bond market are both closed in observance uh, of Veterans Day. But we do have a couple of deals we're going to talk about uh, that went down today. But we're going to start with J.C. Penney. Because JCPenney reported earnings on Friday, sales down 27%. Um, the shares dropped on Friday. This morning, Credit Suisse came out and cut its price target on uh, on JCPenney from 40 to 15. And not surprisingly, shares are down another 10%. Um, Joe, well, it sounds like those guys at Credit Suisse are really on the ball. Yeah, I was going to say, who, who targeted that for 40 in the first place? But, I mean, what do you think when you look at this company? Well... We've talked on the show a lot about how big box retail is really behind the gun. And department stores in particular are kind of in this place where it's really tough to differentiate. And you're in this vicious cycle of couponing to get people to come come in the store. JCPenney was really locked into that addiction. And Ron Johnson came in and tried to wean them off that. To his credit, a lot did need to change at JCPenney to turn the business around. But the strategy that He's taken of you know just radically cutting off coupons, changing the makeup of the store, uh, the layout of the store, the marketing message has just really turned off a lot of customers. So there's just a lot of few, a lot fewer people coming in the door, and a lot fewer people completing transactions once they're there. Online as well. We, yeah, we saw that, online tra- transactions were down too. That was the real surprise, and that was really tough. I mean, it's bad enough that you've got same store sales progressively getting worse. I mean, you're talking about a 26% drop in same-store sales. I mean, that's the kind of thing you don't see except in you know, extreme financial duress. Jason, we were talking this morning. This is, for me anyway, a surprisingly fast drop because about a year ago when Ron Johnson, it was announced that he was going to come over from Apple. He's the retail guy at Apple. He's going to come over. He's going to take over the company as CEO. At the time, I sort of looked at JCPenney as, well, this is sort of the quote-unquote struggling retailer, and it has gone from struggling to a, seemingly a company in peril. More struggling, yeah. And I mean, I, I think that when Ron Johnson came to the company, we we all sort of had those apple-tinted glasses on, thinking that maybe he could work some magic there. But the fact of the matter is this isn't something that really just happened overnight. I mean, if you go back to 2000, sales today are essentially half of what they were in 2000. So it's been a long progressive decline. And, you know, the problem is there's nothing that really differentiates them from another retailer. And like Joe was saying, when it, it, I think that this kind of couponing and discounting can be, it can be a form of addiction for big box retailers like this because they essentially, you know, get stuck in this pricing battle of, of just being the lowest cost provider. When you have, you know, other models out there like Amazon where you can literally go shop for virtually anything that you want, plus the fact that JCPenney, you know, they, they revamped the brand, which indicates to us that it was stale or dated to a degree at least. And I don't think that necessarily rebranding uh, the, the stores plays out quite like they thought it would. It's still, in our eyes, somewhat of a stale old brand to begin with. Yeah, what's tough to swallow, too, is that gross margins keep falling at JCPenney, mm-hmm. which runs pretty counter to what I would have expected, given that they're backing away from couponing and they're focusing on everyday value. But I would have thought that by doing less couponing, you're basically walking away from a lot of bad sales. But gross margins have con- <clears throat> contracted from about 36% to 32% over the last year. And that's a a very serious compression 
in retail, which you know is famously low margin. You don't make a lot of money doing it. Shares are down to their lowest point in more than three years, and we are heading into the holiday season, which, Jason, should be a time when retailers can thrive. Is this an opportunity, or is this stock sort of like I don't know, nuclear waste. Like, you don't want to touch it. I don't see how it's an opportunity, primarily because I don't know what I would really go to JCPenney to get for a holiday present anyway. Like, why would I go there as opposed to somewhere else? I mean, I guess that's the point, is it's not really differentiated enough for me to want to go there or to to want to order online. And we're, you know, even seeing to a degree with Best Buy now, uh, trying to do the same thing as far as being that low-cost provider. They're going to match Amazon's prices. (laughs) Let me tell you, that's not going to end very well either. Uh, So I think that JCPenney is going to be caught in this downward cycle. I don't see any reason for this to turn around. And it's just another one of those sort of nails in the coffin of the argument that turnarounds very rarely actually turn around. You agree with that, Joe? Yeah, I mean, any business is a buy at the right price. But in in this case, I think you're talking about something that's almost uninvestable, where it's very difficult to figure out what the bottom is. It, to his point right there, I, I will say that the difference between something like a JCPenney and like a Radio Shack, for example, is that JCPenney does own some of their property and some of their some of their real estate. So there yeah. must be some kind of value on the balance sheet there, uh, whereas something like a Radio Shack doesn't own anything whatsoever. But yeah, it will become a special situation play where, you know, really dirty value investors now. <laughs> dirty value investors get in there early, try to pour through the balance sheet to find some value there. But yeah, it, it would certainly not be one that you would invest in based on like, uh, you know, a tick up in business. Jeffrey's Group is being bought by Lucadia National for $3.7 billion in stock. Uh, Joe, when you, you look at Jeffrey's Group stock, the, the shares popped right at the open, up about 20%. They seem to have settled back down a little bit. Um, what do you think of this bank deal? I think it's a good move for Lucadia mostly, but they're basically paying around book value for Jefferies, and they're paying with their own shares as currency, which are down today. So they're using their shares that are selling below book to buy something that costs book, which is not generally something that you'd get excited about. To their credit, the guys that run Lucadia, which is kind of like a, a mini wannabe Berkshire Hathaway and has been pretty successful over time, are very smart, savvy deal makers. They know Jeffries well because they own uh, Lucadia owns about twenty eight percent of it already, and I think that having the backstop of a bigger capital base behind Jeffries, which has had some issues with capital uh, recently, <laughs> will help Jeffries' business and give more of a cushion to the underlying company. And I think ultimately, this is going to turn out to be a nice deal. You said that Lucadia National is sort of a mini Berkshire Hathaway. Is it? I'm assuming it's not nearly as diverse when you look at the portfolio of businesses that Berkshire Hathaway has a stake in or owns outright. No, but it is pretty diverse. They own some timber assets. They own some mining-related assets, things that don't really have much to do anything with one another. They actually have a joint venture with Berkshire Hathaway called Berkadia. Very cute. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. And the guys running it are two you know, very saucy, bold guys, and I, I do respect them, and they're smart deal makers, but... Another, and I've actually spent a lot of time looking at the stock, but one big drawback with Lucadia, too, is that they're getting kind of old. And I think the odds are good. Wait, who's getting kind of old? The two guys? Yeah, the guys running the business, that they're going to walk away at some point. Like, this isn't going to be a, a Buffett-type situation where they, you know, run it into their 80s. And if they do walk away and the business is ultimately unwound or liquidated or something along those lines, you know, I don't know how much of a premium I'm willing to pay for book value. Do you guys think this 
sometimes when you see deals being made, and this is not a small deal by any stretch of the imagination, but sometimes when deals are made in a particular industry, it automatically gets the watchers on Wall Street looking at other potential deals. Do you think this is a standalone situation, or is this a situation where we may potentially see more consolidation among the banks? I, I personally think you probably see a little bit more consolidation. I think there's still enough uncertainty and speculation out there in regard to investment banking, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons why this happened. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to see to see more consolidation. Yeah, and I think there's a pretty rich environment for acquisitions because money is it's so cheap to borrow right now, which is rates are low. Corporate balance sheets are strong, and valuations aren't crazy but crazy high by historical standards. So when you put it together and you know, a lot of companies just have more cash than they know what to do with, and they'll go out and make a, a bad deal. I don't think Bucadia is doing that here, but a lot of companies will. And we've talked before about essentially separating the big Wall Street banks, the Bank of America's, J.P. Morgan, et cetera, from the community banks around the country, which in a lot of cases are, are better run. Obviously, they're not as complicated. Their businesses aren't as complicated. They don't have the whole proverbial black box of investments that they're dealing with. But does that make sense? If you're Bank of America, does it make sense to look around the country and shore up your portfolio with with smaller community banks? Or is that just a whole different entity? And if you're Bank of America, you just don't want to deal with that. Yeah, I think most of the big banks are definitely retrenching right now. So instead of looking to acquire, they're divesting assets to raise some cash and keep their balance sheets in good shape. But I think it's when you get into some of the, the smaller players where you might see some mergers. Sherwin-Williams is the largest paint retailer in the United States. It is buying Comex, a paint manufacturer in Mexico, for $2.3 billion. And, Jason, I'm assuming that people think this is a good deal because shares of Sherwin-Williams up about 6% this morning on the news of this deal. And that's a company, I think the market cap is somewhere around $15 billion. 14, so the notion that they're going out and spending that much... Yeah, it is a significant deal. I mean, for the size of of this uh, company, the balance sheet is going to take on a little a little slug of debt because of it. But really, that's all right because they can afford it to begin with. But Sherwin Williams has been it's been a tremendous sleeper on Tom's side of the stock advisor scorecard for about four years now. The company's about two hundred percent up, just throttling the market in the process. But I think that you know, there's really good reason because, in all honesty, when you think of paint, I think. Sherwin-Williams is one of the first names that really comes to mind. Uh, just speaking from the perspective of a homeowner who's painted quite a few walls in my day, uh, Sherwin-Williams, there is something to be said for a quality paint. And so I think this is a really good deal for Sherwin-Williams because it's going to continue to expand their their market footprint. Um, you know, they, they have about 4,000 or so stores uh, around the globe that sell paint to consumers. Uh, but this is just going to be a way for them to, to expand that footprint more or less. If you believe that there is a rebound in housing, is this another sign of it, or is this just sort of its own standalone deal? Well, I I don't think you necessarily would need to play this as a rebound in housing. I think it's certainly a a, a beneficiary of of a rebound in housing, no question there. And it can be an indicator maybe if you see more traffic in stores like Home Depot or Lowe's or Sherwin-Williams stores, for example. And and it's worth mentioning, you know, their comps for their stores uh, were up 9% over the third quarter last year. So traffic is certainly up. And furthermore, they've been able to even pass along some of the price increases uh, because because of production costs going up for them and their paints. Uh, So there is something to that, and I think that typically, whether it's a new home or it's a, a home that's you know a used home that's being bought, uh, you know, painting is one of the first things that happens. Yeah, and one of the highest investments that you can 
get back on your home is painting it. So yeah, it's no definitely a nice little perk and makes it one of the earlier beneficiaries of a housing recovery, too. If you're going to put your home on the market, that's one well, of the best things be It's got to be one of the first things you do. So When you say 9% comps, am I... I don't know anything about the paint industry. That seems like a staggeringly high number. It is staggeringly high, and they actually mentioned in the call here that <laughs> some of the headwinds going forward uh, will be continued slowdown in the global economy and some tough comps to really meet. So they're yeah. they're recognizing the fact that next year there are going to be some higher hurdles to clear because of the performance thus far, and so that's something to keep an eye on. There may be you know a, a nice little buying opportunity down the road for for the stock, but it's certainly a very well run company. They've they've averaged uh, returns on equity over thirty percent over the past five years and really you know continue to grow revenue at a nice steady pace so uh, nothing to indicate that this that this won't be a good acquisition uh, i don't know the last time either you, you guys was looking to buy some paint but there's no shortage of creative names in the world of paint and uh, our producer matt greer prepared this question for the two of you guys to weigh in on nice. uh, because again there are some pretty esoteric names of paint again it's just paint people but, <laughs> but someone at Sherman Williams at Benjamin Moore feels the need to come up with creative names so I'm going to give you four names you tell me which of the following is not the name of a paint color A. Grandma's Refrigerator B. Lingerie Black C. Hamster Cuddles and D. Fun Blonde those names again, Grandma's Refrigerator, Lingerie Black, Hamster Cuddles, Fun Blonde. Which of the following is not a paint color, Joe Maker? I could see the paint industry placating to what they think is their base by going with a couple of those names. I don't see Hamster Cuddles. Okay. That's my pick. Jason? I was going to say Hamster Cuddles doesn't really communicate any kind of a color, so I'm not certain that Hamster Cuddles would be one. The other three sound legit. Uh, you guys are both wrong. It's Lingerie Black. Don't! Wow. Which, uh, I thought that one was semi plausible. Like what was the too risque? I mean, fun blonde. That would not fly in my home. <laughs> <laughs> that would not fly in your home. Grandma's refrigerator. What? That's just got to be that puke green, right? I, <laughs> right. You know what? When you put it that way, Grandma's refrigerator sounds hey. a whole lot better. Um, uh, before we wrap up, as I said at the top, uh, the bond market and the banks are closed in the U.S. in observation of Veterans Day. And uh, among our dozens of listeners, we do have a few veterans out there. So just wanted to say uh, thank you for yes. all that you do uh, in the U.S. and around the world to keep us safe and to uh, enable us to have conversations like this. Absolutely. Joe Mager, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, thank you. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.